Welcome, everyone, to the In-House Roundhouse, where in-house lawyers, outside counsel, and industry experts gather around to discuss current issues and best practices. I'm your host, Mark Enriquez, a commercial litigator with Wombobon Dickinson. With me, as always, is my producer, Brian Ewing. In a recent ACC survey, one of the top areas that in-house counsel indicated was a concern was ESG. Again, that's environmental, social, and governance concerns. And there's been a real push to try to increase awareness of these issues and develop policies around those. So today, we're going to be talking about ESG and sustainability and those issues. And this is actually the launch of Wombobon Dickinson's new campaign about doing well by doing good, where we're going to look not just at ESG, but other ways to focus on a broader set of stakeholders and make sure your company is actually making positive change beyond simple company earnings. To talk about this today, we're lucky to have Pam Cohn with us. Pam spent 18 years with Milliman, which is among the world's largest independent actuarial and consulting firms, uh, She, including her time there as the social responsibility officer. Now Pam helps other companies with CSR and sustainability goals. Pam, very excited to have you with us today. I'm very honored to be here, Mark. Thank you so much for inviting me. Great. This is a hot topic, and let's start with some background. I know, you know, for for a number of years, people have talked about corporate social responsibility. I remember hearing the term CSR. Now everyone seems to be using the term ESG. Let's start with some baselines. Can you tell us, you know, what what is ESG and what what's all the all the discussion now? What 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 does this encompass? I'm glad you started with that question because I think historically companies have thought of CSR as a committee of volunteer employees that focus on a day of volunteering or a charitable donation committee once a year. They give out um, checks to local charities or recycling. And it seemed to be a topic that was relegated to a side committee of interested employees. I think the movement towards recognizing that ESG issues are actually strategic to the business is why people are now calling it ESG versus CSR, because unfortunately, CSR has that historical limitations, whereas ESG seems to recognize that it's core, should be core to the business. Gotcha. And can you just tell us, I think I may have touched on it, but what, what are the letters stand for in ESG? What are, <laughs> what, what's encompassed by ESG now? It, um, the ESG stands for environmental, social, and governance. So environmental is everything you would think it is. You know, what are we doing um, to protect the earth, to preserve the earth, to reverse the effects of climate change? Are we making things worse or are we making things better? Um, so that is where the word sustainability comes in. Um, social is what I consider everything we're doing to grow and nurture our own people and the effect we're having on society. Governance is what some people call compliance. Um, do we have the right policies in place, practices in place, programs in place to ensure that the behavior of our company is you know, to be blunt, improving the world, not making the world uh, society worse. Um, so ESG, one of the arguments against ESG is that that term is so broad, it almost covers everything, but it clearly covers the behavior of your company, how you're treating the world, your people, and are you in compliance 
at a minimum in compliance with the legal requirements. Gotcha. And I understand that for public companies in particular, this has been a big issue and is even a bigger issue. I know for a while, you know, it was a big topic for energy companies and other people with really large carbon footprints were being asked, you know, what are you doing in the in the environmental front in particular? But I know now these private capital groups and investors, uh, BlackRock investor, you know, Larry Fink is well known, writes a letter to CEOs every year. And this year basically said, we're asking anybody we invest in to have a net zero goal and have it you know, net zero by 2050 or earlier. And that created a big stir and a lot of focus because people want to get those investment dollars. They don't want to be blacklisted and say, oh, we're not, you know, we're not meeting that criteria. Um, is is ESG something limited to public companies? Or are you seeing you know non-public companies beginning to look at this area as well? I'm absolutely seeing non-public companies as well. Certainly, to your point, the public companies are getting investment pressure, and even in some jurisdictions, regulatory pressure, um, which doesn't apply to private companies. But private companies are feeling equal amounts of stakeholder pressure, what I call stakeholder pressure. It's much broader than just a shareholder issue. So it's pressure from um, your customers, your clients, your vendor partners, your employees. Even if you're not a publicly traded company, they're starting to ask these sorts of questions. And indeed, I think the pandemic has even shown a brighter spotlight on what are you, as my employer or my vendor partner, what are you doing to improve society and to address some of the inequities that have become apparent through the pandemic? Um, what are you doing with respect to racial injustices that's particular here in the U.S.? So so the stakeholder pressure is, is nearly as strong as the investor pressure and the shareholder pressure. Gotcha. For companies that may just be beginning to think about it, um, what are some steps that you've seen companies take and that you've helped them take? You know, if I'm an in-house counsel at a smaller, maybe it's a small public company, but we've just started looking at, you know, disclosures, or maybe I'm private, but hoping to go public one day. What are some of the things that people are beginning to look about and worry about, particularly from a perspective of an in-house lawyer? Well, I think if we use the same framework as the ESG, the ESG pillars, um, certainly look at your environmental footprint. Um, certainly look at treating your people. What programs do you have in place to help grow and nurture your people in a, a non-discriminatory way, an inclusive sort of way? And then perhaps one of the easiest basic steps you can take is make sure you have the right policies and guidelines in place. Um, one of the first things that vendor partners or suppliers or your clients, customers will ask is, do you have certain policies in place? And while writing down those policies and approving them is unlikely to change what is already good behavior, you want to at least say yes to those questions. You know, many companies don't have a written anti-slavery policy or a written anti-bribery policy or a written anti-corruption policy. That doesn't mean they're engaging in those activities. It just means they've never codified the, the position. So the easiest step to take is to make sure you have, you know, certain guidelines and policies approved and in place and then take inventory of what you're currently doing. What is the current status? How are we affecting the environment? Um, and how are we, what programs do we have in place to nurture and grow our people? So once you have that baseline, then you can start setting targets and goals, you know, including things like net zero or net neutrality. 
That's helpful. Let's, I wanted to, I know there's been a lot of focus on the E, the environmental piece, particularly as climate change becomes an even more present threat. And a lot of people are looking at it. We have the new administration with a bunch of focus on climate change, green energy proposals, the America jobs plan. Um, if I'm interested in trying to be sustainable, but haven't done much, you know, I, I've heard about these benchmarks or grades that different organizations are trying to give you a, a a grade on how you're doing, particularly in the environmental area. Tell us a little bit about those frameworks. Um, we may not have time to go into all the details, but what what do those consist of, and how should the company think about what they might want to adopt or use? I would yes, and and that's a really good question because there are so many frameworks. In fact, in fact, so many people are calling it the alphabet soup of ESG because everywhere you look, there's a new reporting mechanism or a rating mechanism that companies can use. And some of it depends on the industry. There are some industry frameworks that are are specific to an industry. I'll tell you the a few that are emerging from a supply chain perspective is Ecovadis companies now will ask their suppliers and their professional service providers to um, provide information on the Ecovadis questionnaire. There's another one called Integrity Next. And then I would say the most stringent one when it comes to uh, carbon and, and environment is CDP. Used to be called Carbon Disclosure Project, but now it's just gone by the reference uh, or the acronym CDP. And that one is extremely detailed where a company can ask its suppliers for very specific greenhouse gas emissions um, calculations, because when any company sets a net zero goal or a carbon neutrality goal by 2030, 2040, 2050, whatever their target is, the only way they're going to get there is if their suppliers and vendor partners are also making progress. So they have to know what the GHG emissions are of their vendors emitted on behalf in order for them to meet their goals. So that's where some of this vendor pressure and supply chain pressure is coming from, is they're not going to get there without their vendor partners. And, you know, I think that includes, you know, anyone you do business with, from the people that you buy office supplies to, you know, professional service firms, law firms, and accountants. And I think that's surprising um, to some people to realize that they can't just ignore this because that would cost their clients money. Well, uh, you're talking about suppliers raises interesting questions, I think, on both sides, right? Because it may be, right, if I'm just focused on my own company's, you know, carbon footprint, it sounds like that's not enough. I've got to think about all the people I'm doing business with. And similarly, I assume a lot of those suppliers may be non-public companies that have never even figured out what their emissions are. So there's going to be a big push on those companies to start thinking about, well, wait a minute, you know, what what are our emissions? We, we're just a consulting firm. We're an accounting firm. We're a law firm. We are the, you know, we're, we're doing this other work. You know, we're not huge greenhouse gas creators, right? We're not running uh, energy plants or, or right. dairy farms, but we're still going to have, you know, some greenhouse gases. And so it's requiring that kind of analysis. Exactly. And I think for consulting firms, to your point, the biggest contributor to carbon from most consulting firms is air travel. Now, 2020 has done us a favor um, with that, but 
I think most consulting firms and law firms and accounting firms really should be giving careful thought to how quickly you jump back to what when it comes to mindless air travel. Um, because frankly, I think your clients have recognized as well that perhaps I don't need to see my lawyer face to face, you know, on a quarterly basis. That Zoom isn't perfect, but it's not that much worse. Um, and it saves a lot of wear and tear on your physical well-being as well as on the environment. So if a company has not established what their carbon footprint is, is that are there consultants you go out and hire to do that calculation for you? What is that what is yes. what does that process look like? Yes, and um, some of my clients are going through this process right now. And if you haven't started the process, I would recommend you do it because you want to, it seems to me, go back to 2019 to use as your baseline. And if you wait too much longer, that data is not going to be available to you anymore. Certainly, you don't want to use 2020 as your baseline because it was such an aberration. But go back to 2019. And yes, there are consulting firms that can help you do that. Um, it includes everything from electricity usage to waste usage to water to um, catering services to air travel to commuting. And it's just collecting as much data as you can in order to establish a baseline. Many of the carbon consulting firms will have standard emission factors that they can use to predict where you don't have the data, what was it likely to have been um, in order to establish a baseline. So yeah, there's definitely consulting firms out there that can help um, companies get started. Great, that's interesting. The other question I had, Pam, I hear a lot of terminology around net zero, but I also hear people talking about carbon neutral and carbon negative. Um, can you help us, help, mm -hmm. help our audience understand what those terms mean and and maybe also think about you know what what they should be shooting for what 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 are the right kinds of goals to set right and and you're right to assume that all of those have to do with carbon reduction and some of them are agreed upon standards some of them are just movements um, but your company can align with any one of those to start to make progress um, some of the really aggressive companies are are reaching for carbon negative and Microsoft is one of those examples. So they are striving to make sure that by their target date, they will actually be removing more carbon from the environment than they are emitting. So that's where the, the carbon negative comes in. Um, most companies are striving towards simply net neutrality, meaning their carbon emissions will be reduced as much as possible and whatever can't be reduced will be offset. Um, so yeah, there are lots of different frameworks and regimes out there that your company should explore before setting any sort of a target to figure out which one is the best fit for you. That's that's helpful. Um, I know you're going to be talking more on May 25th, so I will have more opportunity to maybe look at some of these standards and ways to think about the standards. As part of the firm campaign, too, we're going to be doing an entire webinar looking at um, things like incentives to, to accomplish those goals, modifying your compensation structure, other things to think about. So I encourage folks to go to uh, the Womble Bond Dickinson website and our page on this to see some of the upcoming webinars 
uh, and other information. Uh, before we wrapped up here, though, Pam, I did want to talk a little bit about the, the S and the G, just to get a sense of what companies are currently looking at. And I know this is an emerging area, but what are some of the things um, that you see companies focusing on on the social and the governance piece? Mm -hmm. Certainly on the social piece, um, it's quite clear to me and probably to you as well that the two areas of focus are health and well-being of your employees. And that's been, again, amplified because of the pandemic. How, how are we taking care of the health and mental well-being, physical well-being and mental well-being of our employees? Um, so there's a huge focus on that. There's also, of course, under the social S pillar, um, a tremendous focus on racial inequities, um, diversity and inclusion. What can we do to make sure we don't have any, any implicit bias in our recruiting and in our promotion cycles and so forth? So there's a lot of work going on with companies in both of those areas under the S. Um, the, the G, I think, again, is mostly making sure you have the correct policies and procedures in place, programs in place, so that even if it's stating the obvious, you have these things codified and written down and agreed upon so that when your vendors and customers and clients ask, you can say yes. Um, Many of these questionnaires and rating um, questionnaires, surveys that I talked about earlier, if you have to check that box no, it's clearly going to affect your score. So um, an easy first step is to make sure you have, you know, these 15 standard policies in place so that you can check that box yes. Like I said, it's unlikely to change your behavior if, in fact, you're already you know, not engaging in slavery, not engaging in bribery, and not engaging in corruption. But you have to have it codified in order to be able to say yes. No, that makes sense. I know the other S thing that some of our clients have been looking at are, you know, equal pay issues, which can be challenging both across gender lines and race lines to try to look at that and look at some of those numbers and, and what steps can be taken. And that's another hot issue uh, for yeah. folks to try to to try to grapple with um, and, and a variety of things, including the tech industry and and yeah. elsewhere. We've got some clients where they're really seeing, you know, seeing some of the disparity and a lot of it is historic uh, in nature. And so the issue is what what can you do about it? What What steps are you going to take? I absolutely agree. Gender and pay equity um, is, uh, is also a hot topic under the yes. And in fact, I think when you're in the UK and in the EU and you're talking about diversity and inclusion, that's what they think of is the gender issue, um, the equity issue. And I think here in the US, when we're talking about diversity and inclusion, we seem to immediately go to racial inequities and, and minority um, equities. But yes, it all falls under that S category. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the UK and, and EU. Obviously, we have an office, a lot of lawyers in the in the UK as well. And I've been, I've been amazed at in many ways how far ahead um, they are on this road around sustainability, around the carbon. I mean, it has been for a number of years now, they've been focusing on those initiatives and formed alliances around that. I think it is something that we have a lot to learn from in terms of those EU and UK drivers. And in some way, I think provides a preview uh, for what we may be, you know, what we may be seeing here in the in the next five years. Yes, I think you're right. I think they're ahead of us in part because of regulatory um, advancements that uh, have not yet reached the United States. I think with the new administration, we're definitely going to see 
um, accelerated progress on regulations here. But, but you're right, the EU and the UK are a precursor of what we can expect to see here. That's great. I know folks will get a chance to hear more from you on, on uh, May 25th when we do the webinar, but let me just give you a chance that if there are any final comments or tips or things you think our in-house listeners uh, may want to be thinking about in this area as they try to formulate you know, their own internal company plans, policies, procedures. Sure, I'll, I'll, I'll give a teaser that one of the things I intend to talk about is how to move your social impact, your ESG programs from transactional to transformational. And that goes back to what I talked about historically is people thought of CSR as something that was transactional. You know, a volunteer day of service, a few charitable donations and recycling in your kitchen. The companies that are doing this well have embedded social impact ESG factors in the strategy of their company, and they're having truly transformational impact as a result. And it's core to their business, it's consistent with their purpose, and it's collaborative in nature. And I will give examples of the companies that are doing it really well. Great. Can't wait to hear it. I know all of you will look forward to it. That will be free. It'll be hosted live, I believe, noon on May 25th. We are going to record it. So if you can't make it that day, you can check it out at WombleBondDickinson.com. Um, Pam, thank you so much. We're really looking forward to hearing more from you on May 25th. I do want to remind our listeners, you can find previous episodes of the In-House Roundhouse and subscribe to this podcast at our website, Wombleban Dickinson, or iTunes, Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, wherever you find your podcasts. If you have questions or comments, you can share them with us on LinkedIn or Twitter. I want to thank everyone for listening. This has been the In-House Roundhouse. We'll see you at the next station. In-House Roundhouse is a production of Womblebond Dickinson. Brian Ewing is our producer, and Robert Daughtry is our audio engineer.